Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Now, as you all know, uh, one of our big vision targets as a church is this. Will you read this top part with me? We will be a congregation who knows, honors, and reads the Bible. Or uh, in terms of street talk, if you will, if you hang with us for the next five years at the end of it all, I want you to be able to say, look, I grasp the story of the Bible because there is an overarching story. I respect the Bible as authoritative. It is the authority of my life. I know how to read it because it's an ancient document. And important key here, I actually read it. That's what we want for you. And so in pursuit of this vision target, this year, one of our strategies was to implement 15 Bible study intensive weekends during church. Little less song, little more study, little less preachy, little more teachy, right? This is Bible college level stuff that we're after on these weekends. We really want you to know this book. Now, up to this point, we've had several Bible study weekends already this year, and uh, we've covered, I believe, eight books in the Old Testament. Dan Hamill, thanks to him, he came last week and, and closed our, uh, our, our, our run at the Old Testament down, right? And we've now got the story arc of the Old Covenant, if you will. So praise God, today I get to take us into the New Testament. We get to start talking about that Jesus stuff. Next week will be Acts. This week will be the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, you can open it there. Now, one of the things I've tried to teach y'all <clears throat> throughout this, this Bible uh, study, uh, week in and week out, is this, this fancy, uh, you know, $10 seminary word. Uh, hermeneutics. I've tried to teach you all hermeneutics. Hermeneutics comes from the, the Greek word hermeneuo, which means uh, to interpret, to interpret. Do, do, do you know what the Greek god Hermes did? What was his role? You ever yes, that's right. You see the little, little wings on his helmet here. He was the messenger god, or in other words, his responsibility was to take divine messages and communicate them to people. And when you read the Bible, that is exactly what you are doing. You are taking the divine word of God and you are either communicating it to your heart or you're communicating it to people in your lives. And that is an important responsibility, right? And it's hard. It's hard. We're talking about a document that goes back at the very least about 1,900 to 2,000 years. It was a, a, a collection of 66 different documents that was written over a span of 1,600 years in three languages that you don't know and in literary types that for the most part you don't use. Like you write in emails and text messages, one third of the Bible is poetry. So it's been important for us to try to figure out how to read this ancient artifact. We've talked about how to read cosmologies. We've talked about how to read origin stories or what I called grandpa stories. We've talked about how to read historical narrative, how to read Hebrew poetry, how to read prophecy. Today, I wanna teach you how to read gospel, the literary type of gospel, because it, it has its own flavor to it and it is of the utmost significance. This is a diagram I snapped out of one of my textbooks in my office. Uh, and it illustrates well the story arc of scripture and how it mirrors itself around the person of Jesus. It starts with the creation of the heavens and the earth and then moves to the judgment of people with flood and then moves to God uh, selecting Israel as his people and then it flows towards Jesus. And from that we get, again, people, people. God's new people, the church. From that we get judgment, again, God's final judgment. And from that we get a new heaven and a new earth new creation. But the point is, is that the center point of human history, the climactic moment and human in the history of all things is who? It is Jesus the Christ. And it is the gospels where we gather his story. It's important we, we read these and we know how to read these. So a little quick gospels 101 for you, all right? 
Let's talk about, about gospels. First, there are four gospels in your New Testament. At the very beginning, four separate accounts, Matthew's account, Mark's account, Luke's account, and, and John's account. For the record, they are written in the common Greek of the time, Koine Greek. So uh, this is ancient Greek. So if you were to go to Greece, if you want to learn how to read biblical Greek, don't go to Greece today. You'll learn modern Greek. The difference between uh, modern uh, Greek and, and Koine Greek would be like modern English and old English. You ever read old English in, world li- or, uh, in, in American literature class? Like it's just like a different world, right? It's the same thing. Modern Greek would help a little, but not a lot. If you were to ask me the genre, if you will, of the gospels, well, I would steal from the great historian, Richard Bauckham from St. Andrews. And I'll tell you the genre is testimony, testimony, historical testimony. This is a picture of Professor Bauckham there for you. Brilliant, brilliant guy. He wrote a doorstopper of a book making this argument. The genre of the gospel is testimony. Now, what does that even mean, Tyler? Well, how do we use testimony today? In what context do we use it? Two primary contexts. One, legal contexts. I'm going to bring this witness to the stand in the courtroom, and they're going to give their eyewitness testimony of what happened, right? And two, we use it in church contexts. Sister, come on up on stage and share your testimony of how Jesus transformed your life. Now, I think at the collision of those two uses of testimony, we find what the Gospels are after. They're eyewitness accounts, look at what Jesus did, but they're also testimonial, look at what Jesus did to me. You see? So this helps. Now, the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, euangelion, and it can be translated in English also as good news. Uh, The gospel is good news. Interesting thing about this word euangelion, it was actually used by the ancient Roman government to talk about their king, Caesar. In three very, very specific uh, contexts. Uh, One was when there was the ascension of a new Caesar. They would proclaim the good news, the gospel of that. Uh, Two, when there was a visitation planned by Caesar to some city, they would go forth into that city before he got there and proclaim the gospel, the good news of that. Or uh, three, when there was a victory in war, they would send heralds, messengers, preachers around the Roman Empire and proclaim the gospel, the euangelion, the good news. A proclaimer, a preacher would go into town, throw their soapbox out into the middle of town square, and they'd say, Hear, O people of the empire, the gospel, the good news. Caesar has won the war and established Pax Romana, peace for us. Now, the reason why I point that out is because if you think about this, the Christian use, Jesus's use of the word gospel to describe his story is incredibly politically subversive, is it not? Think about how politically subversive this is in the Roman Empire. Hey, there's a new king that's ascended to the throne and he most certainly has won the war. And he has visited us, and he will visit us again. Hear the Christian gospel. You see? Now, again, four gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, what we call the synoptics. I'll come back to that. Were written approximately 60 to 80. And John was written approximately 90 to 100. That's the scholarly consensus. John does his own thing. If you've ever read them all, John's like the artistic brother just out there. Okay. Okay. He's orthodox. He doesn't go too crazy. He's just different, right? But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you read those together, they look alike, which is why scholars call them the soon optics. The soon optics. Optic means to look. Soon is a prefix or a preposition that means alike or together. So they look alike. In fact, many scholars believe that Mark was the earliest gospel written and Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source for their gospels. They look alike. But just because they look alike do not mean that they are exactly the same. 
In fact, each one of them, I would suggest, have their own theological emphases and agendas, which is why one of the richest things you could do is just get to know Matthew. Like re- we like to read the Gospels as sort of like a gospel stew, if you will, all stewed up together. But I would challenge you, go read Matthew and get to know Matthew. Go read Luke, get to know Luke. Read, Mar- read John and get to know John, because each of them, though faithful, have a different take. And it's incredibly, incredibly fruitful. Now, the last big question I get about the Gospels, um, and I just got to hit this real quick, um, because I I get it a lot, especially from the nerds, is this. People say, okay, Tyler, I get it, Um, the Gospels, yeah. But you only included four Gospels. And according to the History Channel special that I watched before Easter, there are more than four gospels. You know, tell us about those. The gospel that talks about like middle school Jesus, the gospel that talks about how Jesus was like boyfriend, girlfriend, going steady with Mary, that got the Da Vinci Codes gospel. You remember when Dan Brown did that? Okay, tell me about those gospels because that's got a ring of truth to it, Tyler. The, the gospels that the church has suppressed for hundreds of years. What's behind the curtain, preacher? Those gospels. Have you ever heard of those gospels before? Just show of hands. Yeah, okay, yeah. So if you've ever asked that question before, I want you to know it's a really, actually a really good question. It's not a bad question. There are ancient documents called gospels that are attributed to other quite famous names, the founding fathers and mothers of the Christian church. Uh, the gospel of Thomas, gospel of Philip, gospel of Mary, gospel of Nicodemus. However, They were not and never have been considered as Bible. And there are two reasons why. The first reason is they are written much later than the Gospels in the New Testament. The Gospels in the New Testament spanned the middle end of the first century. They are within the life and the immediate first generation after the apostles lived and died. These gospels, scholars will tell you, this is scholarly consensus, were all written mid to late second century into the third century, which means they were written a couple of generations after these people died, which means that someone grabbed a famous pseudonym and slapped it on their writing in order to get it more attention. Already I'm suspicious. Now that's reason number one. They're written very late. Here's here's reason number two. Okay, so... Explain it like this. Just because something wasn't written by apostle, which these weren't, doesn't mean it's not true. There's all sorts of devotional literature that you read today, supplementary literature that you read today in order to learn about God, right? Some of you love Max Lucado stuff. Some of you love Tim Keller stuff, Jackie Hill Perry, Beth Moore, right? All these people are great and, and their, their writings are fruitful. In fact, we recognize them as helpful as a church. I'll bring books up here and recommend them on weekends. Now, we all understand as a community that those aren't on the same level as the Bible, but they're important to help us understand the Bible. So what about these early gospels? Did the early church understand them like that? Well, the answer is no. They had some supplementary material uh, like that, written by really cool names like, like Clement, Ignatius, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Shepherd of Hermes, the Didache, But if you read the early church fathers, not once will you ever hear them mention any of these gospels one time, not once. And do you know why? It's because none of them come even close to fitting the unified message of Jesus in the New Testament. Not even close, like go read these today. Go waste your Sunday, it's public domain, I've done it, and read them. And what you'll see is it's like lion, tiger, panther, refrigerator, which one doesn't fit? (laughs) Just for those of you who don't believe me. There you go. Let's read a little excerpt from the gospel of Thomas. You tell me if this sounds like Jesus. Simon Peter said to him, him being Jesus, let Mary leave us for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male? What? 
so that she too may become a living spirit. What? Resembling you males. What? For every woman, hear the word of the Lord today, women of Northeast Christian Church, for every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Praise God, let's sing amazing grace and have an altar call. It's just, it's obvious. The reason the church doesn't talk about these isn't because they're hiding secrets. It's because these gospels are cuckoo for cocoa puffs. So moving on <laughs> to Matthew. Now, that groundwork being laid. Uh, I believe that Matthew has uh, three key themes. There's more themes we get to, let's, let's just focus on these three. There are three key themes that I want you to, want you to see and one twist that applies to all of them. Uh, theme number one, and this is the main theme, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. And Matthew really, really wants you to see that. Uh, theme number two and three sort of uh, fill this out. Matthew uh, focuses on the fact that Jesus is the promised king from the line of David. We'll see a lot of that. And that Jesus is the greater Moses, the greater Moses. Moses was a great leader in Israelite history. Now, uh, with, with these two sub-themes, like, the, like being the promised king of David, we'll see Matthew develop these out. And he'll talk about uh, Jesus' royal authority. Uh, he will talk about, oh, he'll, he'll talk about Jesus' preaching agenda where he preaches the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In this theme of Moses, we'll see that Matthew clearly thinks that Jesus is leading in Exodus. And he clearly thinks that like Moses, he's bringing a new law or a new law covenant to the people. But here's the catch. Here's the twist. And you're gonna hear me say this a lot today. All of these themes are just not like what anyone thought. It's just not like what you think. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story, just not like you think. Jesus is the promised king of David. He's gonna use his royal authority, just not like you think. He's gonna establish a kingdom on earth. It's just not the sort of kingdom that you would have expected. He's the greater Moses and he's gonna lead an exodus. It's just an exodus, not quite what, what you thought. And it's a law, he's gonna bring a new law. It's just not quite the law that you would have predicted. It's just not like what you think. Now, I'm gonna tell you, if you can bring these three themes into your reading of Matthew and this one twist, you'll see it in everything and the book will start to come together for you. Now let me show you, let's sprint through Matthew, all right? And let me show you these. Hmm, where should we start? How about verse one? So Matthew's writing the import, most important story ever, right? Most important story ever. He knows it, gonna be a bestseller. So how does he start this book? Well, something exciting, like a, like a car chase? A fight scene? A distress call from a galactic princess? No. Uh, Matthew starts this exciting story the most boring way possible with a family tree, a genealogy. And this isn't like him just taking us back a few generations. Like, I'm not just gonna tell you about your great grandpa. I'm gonna tell you, we're gonna go back to the beginning. We're gonna start with Abraham. Genesis, or excuse me, Matthew chapter one, verse one. He says, uh, this is the genealogy. It's the first verse of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He then goes on after that to give three sets of 14 different generations. There's more than three sets of 14. Those are just the names he chooses. He also includes four women whose presence there are theologically significant, each in their own right. But it's all a bit rigorous. So why does he do it? Well, back to our themes. From the beginning, he's trying to establish where he's going. The introduction matters, right? The introduction to a book matters. And he's trying to tell us Jesus is the fulfillment of this story y'all been reading. Jesus is this promised great royal son from the line of David. 
Now, yeah, see that hand in the back, go ahead. Tyler, I wasn't here the first eight Bible study weekends, so can you just remind me what the story of the Old Testament is? Gladly. Um, glad you asked. Okay, so first, it starts, it starts with Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates a good and perfect universe and world. And he crowns that creation with image bearers. And these image bearers are given an important role. Lead for me. Rule and reign the earth. Do that by obeying me and channeling my will into the four corners of this good creation. What a purpose. Man, it would have been nice to be an image bearer, right? You know who the image bearers are? You, me, it's us. We're the image bearers. Isn't that great? So what a setup God has given us here. What a setup. Now, how do we do? Oh, come on. Like, how do you do most days? How how did we do? Not good. Not good. In Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve disobey. They eat the fruit. They lie to God. In Genesis 4, we see Cain kill his brother Abel over jealousy. In Genesis 6, we see an entire generation besides Noah gone wicked. And so God hits the reset button, floods the place, and, uh, and rebuilds humanity through one righteous man named Noah. Oh, by the way, when Noah gets off the ark, we find out he ain't all that righteous after all. And I'm gonna let you read that story on your own. And then after that, after that, we see this, this new generation uh, of humans go and, and imagine, and imagine, imagine a human society that would do something like this, okay? We would never, okay? We see a, we see a, a generation use human ingenuity and technology to try to, ascend to the heights of heaven and make themselves like God. Imagine. So by the time we get to Genesis chapter 12, things are not good. And there's this question hanging over the story. What's God gonna do? Uh Uh-oh. What's he going to do with us? Will he fire us? Will he get even? Will he hit the reset button again? Will he yell really loud like I do when I get annoyed with my kids? Will he give up the relationship, wipe the slate clean, and start over? What will he do? To which Genesis 12 says, well, no. Instead, he picks a pagan, a sinner, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to fix this. The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family. Go to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and make you famous. You'll be a blessing to others. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And here's the key, the Abrahamic covenant. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham, through you. That's his answer to human sin. Through your family, I'm going to bring an answer, Abraham. Now, you need to understand that this John 3.16 rescue plan that you hear churches like us chirping about all the time, it is here where that plan begins to take shape, here. The Old Testament isn't just a bunch of random verses that sort of hint at at Jesus or, or predict him occasionally. Rather... All 39 books are an interwoven narrative that flow towards Jesus as the solution for what's wrong with everything. And it starts with this covenant. Abraham is actually stage one, and there are four stages to the covenant. We've talked about this, haven't we? Stage one is Abraham. I'm gonna bring blessing to the world through your family. One of your sons, a great son of Abraham. Stage two is Moses' law covenant. Basically, the law covenant goes like this. God gives Moses the law, and he tells the people, if you obey the covenant, then you will be a blessing to the nations. You'll you'll realize this Abrahamic promise. If you disobey the covenant, you'll be punished. You'll go back into slavery, foreign exile, just like you were in Egypt, but don't worry, we'll still get back to this thing eventually. That's the covenant, and they don't do well. Stage three is David's covenant, where he comes to David and he says, I'm gonna continue this crimson thread through you, David, it's going to be your son someday who will be the royal king that establishes a forever covenant. And then finally we get to stage four of the covenant where Jeremiah talks about the new covenant that will come. By the way, do you know what the word covenant means? It just comes from the Latin word um, uh, that that we use for testament. Did you know that? When we say Old, Old Testament or Old Covenant, 
or excuse me, Old Testament or New Testament, what we mean is Old Covenant or New Covenant. So when you're talking about the Old Testament, what you're talking about is this is the story of the Old Covenant. When you're talking about the New Testament, for us, we believe you're talking about the story of the New Covenant. And this is what Jeremiah says. One day a new covenant will be established. This, by the way, is why Matthew is loaded with Old Testament quotes, allusions, and what he calls fulfillments. Fulfillments. Uh, the Greek word for fulfill means something like uh, to, to bring to completion or, or to perfect something. Fifteen times Matthew explicitly says Jesus fulfills an Old Testament scripture. They are largely concentrated around his birth and his death. Five times in the Christmas story alone, he says, Jesus did this or this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. And uh, Jesus gets really explicit in Matthew 5, 17. He says, look, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them, to bring them to completion, to perfect them. This is what he's after. All right, are you still with me? Is this at all interesting to you? Okay. So back to our themes. I've showed you these, and we'll come back to these. these we're not done with these. All right? We've seen how the, story, the Old Testament story flows into Jesus. We see how Matthew wants to, wants to connect him to the Davidic promise, the covenant, right? But what about this greater Moses one? What about that? Like, I never remember Jesus saying I'm Moses or whatever. So, so where do you get that from, Tyler? Well, if you had the eyes and the ears of a first century ancient Jewish reader, you would see Moses all over this story, like the Moses comparisons run deep. Okay, so what was Moses known for? Well, he's known for the Exodus. He, he led Israel out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and into freedom, into the wilderness. He then spends 40 years there in the wilderness leading them. While they're in the wilderness, he delivers to them the law from the mountain, Mount Sinai. And then eventually he leads them to, not into, but to the promised land. Moses' rap sheet for you. And I think Matthew intentionally draws on these checkpoints of Moses' story when he's trying to describe to the people why Jesus is such good news, such gospel news. For example, in Matthew chapter 2, the Christmas story, we start by seeing Jesus escape to where? Egypt, Egypt. Herod the Great wants to kill all the babies because they say there's a king that's, that's been born, right? So an angel comes to Joseph and says, you better go to Egypt, right? And that night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. And this, what? There it is, fulfilled what the Lord spoke through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. So, okay, Jesus goes to Egypt. He comes back from Egypt. Matthew chapter three, what do we see next? We see Jesus baptized in the waters of the Jordan. Matthew chapter four, we see him go through the waters into the, into the, where does the spirit compel him to go? Into the wilderness for how long? 40, 40 days, hmm, 40 days, 40 years. Oh yeah, and then after that in Matthew chapter five, we see Jesus go up on a mountain and deliver his kingdom manifesto, one of the best representations of his way, of his will, of his law. We call it today the Sermon on the Mount. Do you see? Do you see? And if you are a first century Jewish le reader, Moses is exploding off the pages already. This is a new Moses. This is a greater Moses. This is a better Moses. In fact, Jesus makes explicit what his new law will be in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. You remember this passage? He says, uh, okay, so when the Pharisees heard that Jesus punked the Sadducees, uh, they met together, they, they wanted to go after him. So one of, one of their lawyers, their experts in religious law, tries to trap Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Here's how Jesus answered uh, he said, uh, first, uh, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with everything, right? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Uh, second commandment is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's, here's the deal, Jesus says, here's the deal. The entire law, all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Now, real quick pause here. Um, who does Jesus think he is summing up the entire law of Moses and all the prophets too? 
Moses didn't write the law. God did. He received it from God and then reported it back to the people. So who does Jesus think he is stepping into God's role and in interpreting God's law? Exactly. Exactly. He's Moses, but far greater. So, okay, back to our Moses list here. We've seen Jesus go in and out of Egypt, go through the waters into the wilderness. 40 days in the wilderness, he delivers the law, his kingdom manifesto from the mountain. Well, one, two, three, guess, all, guess he's only got one thing left to do. Hmm? And that is lead the people to the promised land. But since he's the greater Moses, he won't just lead them to the promised land, he'll lead them into the promised land. He won't just offer a sacrificial Passover lamb. Jesus will be the Passover lamb. At the Last Supper, Matthew 26, 28, Jesus passes the cup of wine around and he says, when you drink this, remember, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For what? The forgiveness of sins. And oh, oh okay, oh. All of a sudden, we begin to see that Jesus' mission is, in fact, far greater than Moses's. Because Jesus isn't up against Egypt. He isn't battling Rome, too small. He's up against a tyrant, far more wicked, far more oppressive, far more powerful than any world superpower. His battle is against evil itself, sin. In Matthew 12, 29, Jesus says, who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. And that's what the great Moses will do. Destroy the destroyer, outwit the deceiver, unchain the captives and deliver the people into the promised land. He's just gonna do it like no one expected. Because this cosmic battle will be waged not with swords on a battlefield, it will be waged with three nails and two beams of wood. Now, you seeing how all this comes together? You seeing this? Are you seeing this? Okay. Is this at all interesting to you? Good. Now, let's look at another key idea that runs through here uh, and brings all of our themes together. Okay. Another key idea. It, it's the kingdom preaching of the kingdom of God, or what Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven, same thing. Matthew, for the record, is the teaching gospel. He has more sermonic content, more red letter sermon content packed in there than any of the other gospels. And uh, he summarized for us all of Jesus' teaching, his teaching agenda, if you will, in the very first thing that Jesus preaches in Matthew 4, verse 17. 417, Jesus has been baptized, he's gone through the wilderness, he's ready to get going with the ministry. And this is, this is his preaching, summarized for us. It says, from then on, Jesus began to preach the following. Repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, I would suggest to you everything else Jesus teaches is his attempt to describe what this kingdom is like. He talks about what the king is like. He talks about what the ways and the will and the law of the king is like. He talks about who the people of the kingdom are. Oh, and guess what? Surprise, surprise, as he describes this kingdom, what we find out is it's just not like what anyone expected, right? It's an upside down kingdom, but it's beautiful. For example, let's uh, look at the people, the people that are given significant uh, Significant attention, places of leadership, and gifts of mercy from the king. Um, how about we start with the author of the book? Terrence preached on this man. Matthew. If Matthew, in fact, wrote Matthew, which I believe he did, uh, then he records for us his conversion story in chapter 9. Powerful. What was Matthew's job? Tax collector, very good. And how did people feel about tax collectors? Pfft, right, they didn't like them. The tax collectors were hated for several reasons. One, they were greedy, enriching themselves on the backs of the poor and their fellow countrymen, their neighbors. Uh, two, they were traitors because they were collecting taxes for who? Rome, the evil empire. And three, they were perpetually unclean because they handled money that was passed along from pagans and such. 
These were bad dudes. And so when Jesus walks up to him and he sees Matthew, you know what Jesus says? He says, shame on you. No. Hey, you know what Jesus says? He says, is this where you want to be when Jesus comes back? No. That ain't what he says. You know what Jesus says to him? Two words. He says, follow me. To which Peter, James, and John are like, woo, time out. He's a tax collector. And Jesus said, Matthew, let me introduce you to your new best friends. Follow me. Oh, and what's interesting, he's like, follow me to your house for dinner, right? I love how Jesus does that, right? To your house. And that night, they have dinner. Jesus, the tax collector, and who else? Other notorious sinners and tax collectors. They dine together. And guess what? This is not the sort of kingdom that the religious leaders expected. So they don't like it. They grab Jesus' disciples. They say, why is your teacher eating with such scum? And Jesus' reply is brilliant. When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. That's why. Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy not offer sacrifices, for I have come to call those who think, uh, not who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. A kingdom for the sick, a kingdom for, for sinners, for tax collectors, this is not what we expected. You know, what's interesting is, uh, okay, Matthew, Matthew's story falls in, in this section in Matthew 8 and 9, where Jesus introduces us to the people of the kingdom, if you will. Matthew 5 through 7 is, is Jesus' morally rigorous kingdom manifesto. Lots of truth. And then Matthew 8 and 9, we see Jesus bring the kingdom. To moral degenerates. To the outcasts of society. It's like this, this perfect pairing of, of truth, but then, but then grace. We see him bring the kingdom to the tax collector, to rural fishermen, to, to lepers, to a Roman centurion, to a sick old woman, faithless disciples, demon-possessed Gentiles, a paralytic, a dead child, a bleeding woman, blind men, and a mute man. And then at the end of, of chapter 9, Matthew like summarizes the section for us by showing us Jesus' heart behind it all. It says Jesus traveled through the towns and villages, teaching the synagogues, announcing the gospel of the kingdom and he healed every kind of disease and illness and when he saw the crowds look at your savior's heart when he saw the crowds he had compassion because they were confused are you confused today jesus is for you they were helpless are you feeling helpless today jesus is for you they were feeling like sheep without a shepherd are you feeling lost today jesus is for you and so he pleads with his disciples the harvest is great Look, but, but the workers are so few, so pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers. His heart breaks for the sick, breaks for the spiritually afflicted, breaks for the confused, helpless, and the lost. Uh, back to Bauckham, brilliant historian. Um, he actually makes the argument that Matthew and the Gospels are the earliest examples that we have of a history from below, he calls it a history from below. In the ancient world, histories about losers and the lowly did not exist. History was written by the winners. History was written about the rich and powerful. And as you read the histories of these ancient kings and ancient kingdoms, it's just basically one of the biggest brag fests you've ever seen about how awesome they are. Exaggerated, over the top. Basically, these ancient histories were Instagram. You know, lots of highlight reel selfies taken of your super cool adventures at just the right angle with a little angel face filter. Makes your skin look younger. Don't you go after the angel face filter, Tyler. That's my lifeline. Okay. Just saying. Instagram and these ancient histories are histories from above. But Bauckham says the Gospels are different. Uh, they were written in common Greek, the language of the middle and lower class. Jesus' teachings and parables draw off scenarios from ordinary people's lives, fishing, farming, shepherding, day labor, like the working class people. In Matthew 16, Jesus, or excuse me, in Matthew 20, Jesus himself says, in the kingdom of heaven, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And this is the thing that's so attractive about Jesus, isn't it? He's just not what we expect. 
Nobody knows exactly what to do with him. He's called a glutton and a drunkard by some people and then a rabbi by other people. He dines with tax collectors and sinners, but then the next minute he's dining with Pharisees. He's wise enough to debate scholars, but also silly enough to play with kids. He was holy and prayerful, but then he would violate tradition for the sake of love. In all his teachings, he subverts the popular narrative. He's like, oh, you thought this thing about sex or about money or about power? Well, let me tell you this story about, I don't know, farming that totally flips that on its head. And in all of his moments, the wrong person is the hero. Matthew 5, 3, God blesses those who are poor. Matthew 9, 12, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Matthew 18, 4, anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19, 30, many who are the greatest now will be least important and those who seem least important now will be greatest when the world is made new. Matthew 25, 40, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. This man, he's like, the perfect overlap of grace and truth, compassion and conviction. He defies category. He's unlike what anyone expected and he wants to bring all that to bear on your life, little old you. Now this whole pattern is what gospel scholars call the great reversal. Jesus reversed the ways of the world when he entered it. Uh, in Matthew 16, in fact, uh, we see Jesus begin to get very explicit and direct about his upside-down definition of Messiah. Uh, so uh, he, in 16, you might remember the story, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter responds, they say, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you know, you're the, you're the anointed royal son of David. And Jesus is like, that's right, that's right, that's good, right? But then he begins to define for them what that means. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to, to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem undergo suffering at the hands of the religious elite and be killed. And then on the third day be raised. And Peter didn't like that. So he took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him saying, that's not a Messiah. God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me for you're setting your mind not on the divine things, the divine way, of th but, but on human things. Matthew 20, he gets even more clear with how kings and people of power are supposed to leverage it. He says to his disciples, you know the rulers in this world lord their power over their people. Officials flaunt their authority over those underneath them. But among you, among who? That would be you. Among you, it will be different. Because whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave, for even the son of man, he's talking about himself, even I came not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. Or translation, this is how kings behave in the upside down kingdom. And that ain't like what anyone expected. And that's what we see on the cross. We see a king behaving in ways no one expected. One of the ugly parts of human society is, let's just be honest, there's one set of rules for the rich and the powerful, and then there's another set of rules for everyone else. Ain't it true? You can look at the legal systems of most societies throughout time. Some may pretend to be fair, but let's keep it real. The unwritten rule is guilty until proven rich. This is the privilege of greatness. This is the luxury of the 1%. But on the cross, Jesus flips this paradigm right side up. And he shows us that leaders don't ask for exceptions to the rules, they set the standard. He didn't dodge the consequences when he was guilty. He bore the consequences for the guilty. And as he dies, he quotes Psalm 22, a Psalm of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, he took the God forsakenness of us all on his shoulders. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And then guess what? A couple days after that, something happened that just no one expected. A dead man did not stay dead. Death did not get the final word. No, love did, life did. By the way, if death was the great tyrant and death killed Jesus, that doesn't seem like a victory, does it? 
but hear the good news pronounced from the mouths of angels that first Easter. Matthew 28, verse 5. Angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has been raised. Praise God. Just like he said. And that is good news. Love has won. Death has been defeated. Life is ours. Jesus is king. You can be free. And Matthew leaves us here. He leaves us with a closing summons from the risen Jesus to join the upside-down revolution. Matthew 28, 18. These are the final verses of Matthew. This is it. This is the end. So Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and this is the, the main verb of this one sentence in the Greek. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God and teaching them everything I have commanded you. We call this the great co-mission, the co-mission, right? It's called a co-mission because it's Jesus' mission first, but for some reason, just like when he created the world, he desired for us to play a part in his plan for the world. And this is not what anyone expected after all of our many flaws and failures, but hey, ain't that Jesus? Ain't that Jesus? And I love how he finishes it. I love where Matthew lands the plane with two promises, last sentence. The whole book, Matthew has been telling us how Jesus fulfills the promises, how he fulfills the Old Testament. And in the end, Matthew leaves us with a couple of new covenant promises. Promise number one, Jesus says, I am with you always. And promise number two, don't you worry, this age will come to an end and soon. Beautiful promises to base a life on, huh? And I'm going to tell you what, if there's one thing Matthew has taught us in his book, it's that Jesus keeps his promises. You better believe it. You better believe when God promises something, he's going to come through. It may not be as quick as you'd like it. It certainly won't be in the way that you think it will. It may not be on the terms that you want, but he'll come through better than you ever could have hoped. We're still waiting on some of those promises, some of these new covenant promises, aren't we? He's going to come through. We're still waiting on the promise of our hope eternal, the promise of final judgment and justice, the promise of resurrection, the promise of new creation, the promise of the full presence of God. And I know waiting ain't easy. I know you're weary. I know life grinds us down over time. I know it seems like bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people in this age. I know it wasn't right for your husband to be the one who passed away or your wife to be the one who cheated or your kid to be the one who is sick or your friend group to be the one that ostracized you or your job to be the one that was no longer needed. Like I know that sometimes down seems up and up seems down and I know the world is telling us that wrong is right and right is wrong and I know the anxiety of it all is stressing us out. But child of God, hear it today. Jesus promises to be with you. And he promises that one day this age will come to an end. And Jesus is going to do it. Yes, he did. Yes, he is. Yes, he will. Son of David, the greater Moses, he fulfilled the story. And hey, if Jesus kept the old covenant, you better believe he'll keep the new one too. Great is his faithfulness. Do you believe that? Hear the words of this old hymn from a tired voice this morning. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Sing it, church, come on. Great is thy faithfulness. 
Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And so, Jesus, we thank you today. We thank you for all you've done. We thank you for the good news that gives us life and hope. We thank you for the promises yet to come. And in this moment, we bring all of our weary hearts, all of our burdens, all of our problems, all the bad news that the world has for us, and we lay it down before you, the bringer of the gospel, the bringer of good news. Great is your faithfulness. We remember that as we sing, as we pray, as we partake of the emblems of communion. Amen. Hey, I'd ask you to stand. We're going to sing this song, partake of communion. We'll be out of here. But as we sing this song, I'm going to go down here to the rugs, and I'm going to pray for you. And if you need some good news this morning, I would encourage you to come up during this final song and urge communion and ask Jesus for it. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turn.